1: The Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology, or CONCAT, was started a decade ago in New Haven. It provides GED and job training programs, entrepreneurial support for adults, and after-school programs for students. The idea is modeled after an innovative program in Pittsburgh that's part of the Manchester Bidwell Corporation. It's a one-stop shop that changes the lives of underserved communities. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Later, we'll talk about why community college enrollment has dropped during the pandemic. But first, Eric Clements. He's been head of CONCAT for the past decade, and he stepped down this year to focus on redeveloping neighborhoods. He's now executive chairman of the Connecticut Outreach Revitalization Program, or CONCORP. It's the economic development arm of CONCAT. Later he'll talk about his role in the Dalio Philanthropies Partnership that was supposed to help kids in struggling school districts, but it fell apart last year. And he'll talk about the legacy of his wife, Sharon, who died of COVID in November. I asked him to first talk about the idea behind CONCAT as it was being imagined in 2011.
2: The idea was to bring market-relevant job training uh, to folks in Newhallville and Dixwell especially, but also uh, surrounding New Haven. Secondly, we wanted to bring arts after school and summer programming to kids and use the arts as a vehicle for academic achievement. And then thirdly, we added a a third leg of the uh, the stool, which was entrepreneurship. Young people who may not have the wherewithal or the, the wish to go to college, but have an entrepreneurial spirit. We wanted to identify that entrepreneurial spirit and create a way for those kids to live a life of potential. And so we started an entrepreneurship academy, actually with Quinnipiac University, and now has gone statewide with Waterbury, Bridgeport, uh, Hamden and uh, Fairfield kids from all over 80 kids now are in our entrepreneurship academy but three legs of the stool to really uh, think about ways in which people can live their live out their potential while at the same time have a life of dignity so that's that was the that was the main goal for us
1: that life of dignity and creating opportunities for that was launched in Pittsburgh. And became a part of this broader, at the time national, but now international effort to help people live that life of dignity. Even though there was a framework in Pittsburgh uh, through the Manchester Bidwell Corporation, what was the, the challenge of creating that sort of center in New Haven and creating opportunities for people living in those neighborhoods you mentioned?
2: Oh man, there were many challenges, um, Dot. One was we had chose to build our site in Science Park, which is a Yale branded uh, property, as you know, and not knowing the history of Science Park where where the, the park intentionally or originally was supposed to be created um, as a response to Winchester repeating arms closing down. And so that space, that lo- those acres would be Uh, for more kind of industry and factory work for folks who who lived in the community who lost their job because Winchester shut down. And they reversed the idea of doing that and created biotech bioscience hubs, thus being named Science Park. And so we came into uh, into that space not knowing that story. And quite frankly, they had built gates and walls around that space. Um, and you know, you, you had to kind of stop to come through science park, um, folks who are indigenous to the community. We didn't know that we thought science park was ideal because it was in the midst of cutting edge technology, hence the name, uh, technology in our, our name, uh, while in this at the same time in the, in probably the most depressed neighborhood in, in new Haven. And so it was very difficult for fo- for folks from the community to take us serious thus trust us because we had set up shop in a place that, um, quite frankly, did not keep their promise to the community. And so that took us some doing. But I think the bigger piece to this in terms of the difficulty in in doing what we were doing was getting folks to believe that what we are doing is for them. That everything and everything we provide, as you know, is, is free of charge. It is at no cost to anyone. And so again, the most difficult challenge for us was getting folks to believe that one, it is for them and two, even worse, they deserve it. They deserve what we are building. And so it took took us some time to whittle down the the, the mountain of distrust, if you will, um, where folks will now come and and we can serve them what we have um, and really advance our mission because now they are um, on mission with us
1: there are physical barriers and physical challenges to that kind Mm. of inclusion that you mentioned but Mm. often the result of this is as you said the skepticism about who are you and why are you coming into this community what's in it for you and you mentioned having to overcome those challenges and hurdles as you look back at your time at concat what are you most proud of
2: wow um, I'm proud of a couple of things. One, I've, from the outset, um, I wanted to create a staff of people that would be empathetic to the sting of unemployment because we were doing workforce development. And so I remember when I was when it was time for me to start hiring people because I had this mountain of work. Now I needed help. Um, I, I went to our board chair and I said, you know, there I have like 200 resumes of people uh, who are are looking for work. Most of the resumes are people who are unemployed. I said, I think we should hire folks who do not have a job right now. And so everyone, when we opened, everyone that I hired was most recently unemployed. And I'm really, really proud of that. And I look at these folks, someone like Genevieve Walker, who is now the CEO and president, who came in um, when our door, you know, she was there maybe a month and two months before the doors opened, she was unemployed. She is now the CEO. I'm really proud of that. I'm proud that the community sees CONCAT as a community citadel now, and it's a trusted vehicle for change. Um, not only in the community, not only in the city, but in the state, quite frankly, in the, in the country, right? It's one of the premier nonprofits in the country, quite frankly. And so, I'm I'm proud of the work that we've done, and I'm proud that um, I'm proud that I could leave, right? I'm I'm proud I left the right way. You know, we we had a succession plan and we worked it for the last four years, um, and I don't think a nonprofit leader especially one who is founding should be in that pos- in their position more than 10, 10 years and this was 10 years and and i didn't want to i didn't want to stay and not be relevant anymore right my leadership not be relevant and so i'm really proud that that i i had the courage to leave and the humility to leave
1: eric you talked about investing in your staff with intention and investing in their potential in a way that many others do not. New Haven is known as an Ed's and Med city. And Mm -hmm. often that means limited opportunities for other people. I want you to think about how the pandemic affected the work of CONCAT? Because now it's not, it's never just been about the programs, but it certainly, I would imagine, became complicated. Talk to our listeners about how do, dealing with these dual pandemics affected yeah, the work yeah. at CONCAT.
2: Yeah, it, 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 it did impact the work. We, we had to close down. And as you know, we have workforce development programs, two in the medical field, and the other in culinary arts and all the restaurants closed. So what are we to do? Um, Also, what was important to me was the staff, whether it be from our security guard, Idis Wilson, to myself, 24, 25 people. I wanted to make sure that those folks in the midst of this pandemic did not lose a paycheck. And so what I did was um, I started raising money to ensure that, Our staff especially stayed on point, stayed on mission, advanced our mission, even if they're not in the building. Secondly, we realized that a lot of our families and our students were were struggling and suffering along with the folks in in the community. And um, we wanted to raise money to help those folks. What we set out to do was raise money, raise the COVID-19 relief fund um, with an aim of $600,000. And what we would do was give out $400 debit cards to folks in Dixwell, in, in New Hallville, and our parents of our kids in our programs, and people who are in our programs who are really suffering due to COVID. And so we were able to raise about $520,000 in the maybe three weeks, we raised that money. And so for months, we gave out $400 um, every month to folks who were struggling and and really gave the money away. We we then started thinking about, okay, people are really hungry as well. And so I was able to work with a uh, market, Elm City Market downtown, and they allowed me to leverage their food distribution lines. And because as you know, food at the time was not um, being distributed, it was actually going to waste because the restaurants were closed we were able to reroute those, those, uh, that food distribution. And CONCAT, we have a restaurant called Orchid Cafe. Orchid Cafe became a food hub and a food distribution center for the neighborhoods. So those are some of the things that we had to do in terms of pivoting to help people while at the same time try and get our programming back on track um, because we still had students who were looking for things to do and, and wanted to continue their education. But it was a pivoting to to really advancing the mission in a different way.
1: You wrote an op-ed in the Connecticut Mirror, and it was called, When People Are Putting Their Bodies on the Line, The Least We Can Do Is Support Them. And I want to raise a line from your op-ed that really struck me. And in the letter that you sent out for communities, you said, we're committed to proclaim the power of justice through service and through a concerted effort, exact the wrongs. Of poverty, why do you see addressing poverty as a moral imperative that then needs to be embraced by community?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I grew up really poor and always wondering who was going to come help me, and folks never really coming. Uh, The one solace that I had was a place called the Carver Community Center. I'm from Norwalk, Connecticut. And that community center really raised me. And and so I know the profound sting of poverty to your point earlier, not only a physical pain, but a psychic pain that poverty creates in the mind of people. And so I think a lot of times, if not all the time and too, too often, there is a focus and a deep concentration on the manifestations of poverty as opposed to addressing poverty itself. Poverty is the enemy. And we have the means to get rid of poverty. We do, but we'd rather kind of program poverty out because I think a lot of times folks who have have the means, um, they wanna do something about poverty but they don't wanna be next to poor people while doing it. And so um, I think poverty is our number one issue it is, I don't think it is um, education disparity. I don't think it is housing disparity, although those things are, are evil as well. I think those things are wrought from poverty. And if, until poverty is addressed, we will never ever uh, exact the wrongs of poverty, right? We, we will never do it. Um, it, it, is, it is To me, it is the most profound evil that has been created um, outside of slavery. Actually, it is, a, it is a manifestation of slavery.
1: Eric Clemens is the founder of ConCat, the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology. He just stepped down as CEO after a decade. Coming up, he'll talk about his focus now with the Connecticut Outreach Revitalization Program and about his role as chair of the board of a public-private partnership between the state and Dalio Philanthropies. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll talk to a Washington Post reporter about how community college admission rates have dropped dramatically due to the pandemic. But now, let's continue our conversation with Eric Clemens. He's the founder of CONCAT, the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology in New Haven, and he's stepping down as CEO after a decade. He's now the executive chairman of the Connecticut Outreach Revitalization Program, or CONCORF. It's the economic development arm of CONCAT. Asked him to talk about his role at Concord and the new two hundred million dollar project that they are taking on to transform Dixwell Plaza. The goal is to create a mixed-use housing, commercial, and cultural hub that he's working on in partnership with businessman Carlton Highsmith.
2: You know, Mr. Highsmith and I thought about maybe three years ago. What you know, I, I was really thinking we have hundreds of graduates who have went through our medical training programs in our culinary school and parents who have come to CONCAT and become family. And what what is the next iteration of impact we can make for them? They are seeing life differently. They have a job now, they wanna own a home, they wanna own cars, all of these things, they see the world differently and they walk in the world differently with a a different gait. And so what could we do to create the world that they now envision for themselves? And so we said, all right, Let's start this economic development arm of our nonprofit that will create housing, that will create entrepreneurship opportunities, that will create retail. And and so we've set our sights on Dixwell Plaza given that it has been in decline and and, and forgotten for for decades. And I felt like this was an absolute shame given that Dixwell Avenue is the main, in my opinion, the main artery in New Haven. You had this black historic neighborhood that was allowed to be in decline for decades. And we wanted to do something about that. Now, given, again, going back to the word dignity, given that we are looking to create dignity in communities, um, this, in our opinion, and definitely in mine, this community and this track of land, especially had no dignity at all. And and again, was intentionally left to decline. And so we set our sights on Dixwell Plaza, which is a uh, urban renewal, uh, old kind of strip mall. And Eight, eight, eight and a half acres and we said, you know what, let's try and develop, redevelop this plot of land, thus trying to transform this community and, and make it a beacon of light again, not only for, for just the city, but also for black people again. And so we started acquiring those properties. We set up the formation of the organization. I sat with the community for a year and a half, listening to what they want and need. And based on what I heard, we then master plan that site and programmed it uh, based on community information.
1: One of the things that we heard last year was that, you know, there's a report in Forbes that said nearly half of black owned businesses were wiped out because of COVID. On every measure, that disparity has been concentrated within communities of color broadly, but in particular, Black communities. And now we're hearing that the Treasury Department has made this $9 billion commitment to minority-owned businesses. But we also know that even with the PPP program, the people who needed access to those funds couldn't get it because they didn't have the infrastructure that other companies had to do that. How will Concorp address that disparity to support Black-owned businesses who are local to the community and committed to the community and not just to their profit margin?
2: Great, great penetrating question. One, I, I, I launched an economic justice fund for that very reason, right? That 45% of the black businesses in the country were shuttering. They were, they were falling apart and closing. And so what could we do instead of playing the short game in terms of COVID relief um, with food distribution and debit cards, how do we play the long game as well, right? To ensure that if in, if in fact there is economic infrastructure in these black communities through entrepreneur, black entrepreneurship, how do we continue that economic infrastructure and, and continue this capital formation in these communities? And so we launched the Economic Justice Fund. We were able to raise $200,000, and we got a match for another $200,000 from the state. So now we have $400,000 that will go to Black businesses, um, Black business owners in mostly Dixwell and New Haulville, um, and also technical assistance that will go to those folks, and that would be accounting. Um, t- accounting uh, capacities, insurance capacities, um, consultants—you know how to how to build your business. Those types of things. We're bringing that to bear for those for those Black business owners as well. Secondly, we are poised to um, take hold of a forty thousand square foot building, and we'll probably close on it very soon. And we are going to start the Concord Community Economic Impact Lab. And it will be a building dedicated to minority-owned businesses, incubating those businesses uh, mostly from the community and launching those businesses as well. So I'm very, very, very excited about that. Myself, Mr. Highsmith, Paul McCraven, Anna Blanding, who who you all you know, all these folks, we're putting that together now. We have a business plan. We're actually looking for an executive director to run this because you know I, I'm I don't want to run it. Um, I will until we we find somebody to do it. But it's a 40,000 square foot building that is poised to incubate minority owned businesses, uh, mostly in the community. So we're addressing that issue head on, um, which is, again, part of me kind of building a bigger boat is to launch this economic impact lab.
1: Part of what you've done in your career is to think beyond the problems that are before us and to think in innovative ways how we reach solutions. And you are part of this private public partnership with the state advancing education and Dalio philanthropies. And that partnership fell apart because of all of these questions. What do you think the state needs to learn from that, Eric, as we think about the challenges that continue to be present in Connecticut and how we move—not just past them, but through them.
2: Yeah, that the the partnership for Connecticut, you know, it was is born out of a, a couple of ideas, and a lot of not a lot of people know this. You know, myself and a, a young man who works at Dalio Philanthropies, who a dear friend of mine, Andrew Ferguson, and I would have dinner monthly for years and talk about ways in which we can help youth, because you know, youth very much like middle class are are the forgotten people, right? And so, um, you know, for years we, we did this and, and with Barbara and, and, and Ray Dalio thinking about ways to, to do this. And, and um, kind of the partnership for Connecticut was born, was a, as you mentioned, a public private partnership that potentially $300 million, Dr. Okay, K, $300 million were dedicated to disengaged, disconnected youth in the state of Connecticut, where there are over 45,000 of these young people or disengaged, disconnected from school, from a whole bunch of things in life. And we were bringing to bear potentially 300 million, definitely 200 million. 100 million from, from private, 100 million from public. And we were raise another 100 million. 80%, 85% of these young people are black kids. And so I was one of those kids. And so of course I was all in and actually chaired the board of this endeavor. and it was so fraught with politics in a deep way and not just politics, but ad- adversarial politics um, because the Sashu called for politicians to be on the board of this endeavor. Um, and I would, I would go as far as saying also, if the 85% of those kids who needed the help didn't look like me, I think things would have went differently. And I say this now because I said that to the people who were involved. Um, and not all folks behave badly. Not all, actually not, not many. And so I, what I would say is to the state that if in fact you are serious about helping those kids who need the most help And if we are serious about creating a wider and deeper tax base in a way where these kids can now become um, employees somewhere or entrepreneurs somewhere that will take a burden off the wealthy, then leave politics at home. We can help people. Like the things you see that are happening in the state is because people care about them things that you don't see happening because people don't care about them. And so this brilliant idea, in my opinion, that had, could be, could have been a national model in helping kids who everyone look away from, right? That's why I love Barbara and Ray, especially, because they run to the trouble, right? They'll sit with you and say, Eric, what what do you think? Because we don't know, but they'll run to where the help is needed and so um, i would i would i would urge the state that to to have some real moral courage in helping those who need the most help right the poverty conversation now is underway whereas you know you know i've been preaching this and i'm not taking credit but i've been preaching this for a decade now but it was always about biotech bioscience but you know all these things that are are not part of the value set of folks who need the most help but now there is a huge uh turnaround where folks now the whole entire country not just the state want to address poverty when in fact myself and and you as well and other folks have been preaching the issue of poverty for, for a decade now and so there has to be some moral courage um, and there has to be some moral fortitude and, and, and just some heart as, a, as it relates to especially our young people that the, the partnership was trying to reach. Now, there were other issues that, that came about, as, as other issues do, right, especially with a startup organization. But again, I will, I will say that if, in fact, this is just my opinion, if those kids that 85% of those kids didn't look like me, I think things would have went differently.
1: You have been devoted to running to the problem and running to the fire to help people for such a long time. And in the midst of fighting for community last year, you lost your wife, Sharon. Eric, talk about the legacy that she leaves behind and how yeah. that motivates you to continue doing the work that you do?
2: Yeah, thank you for 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 mentioning her because I was going to, you know, when I was thinking about um, going to pick up all the food and distributing it, she was she was right with me, and you know, and I know you can understand this, and hopefully others who are listening can. Like she was like my covering, you know, she was the person. Like at the end of this interview, she would say, "Good job," or you know, you probably need to say this or say that. In um, her legacy, I mean, she was just exquisite and the most sweetest, most determined, brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, she, had, she had it all. And because she chose to help, because she chose, she was a business owner, she's a very successful entrepreneur. Because she chose to put herself out there as opposed to staying at home and um, covering up, she she lost her life to COVID. And you know, she came home one day, uh, Kalila, and one one evening, and she said to me, she laid down and um, and she said, you know, I don't I don't feel too good. And she laid down, and then she went upstairs and laid down some more. And from that utterance. she was gone in two weeks. And, you know, what I chose to do was start a fund in her name to honor her, just her amazing spirit in life called the Butterflies Fund. And Sharon loved butterflies because she always felt like people had the opportunity to transform. Right. If, in fact, they held still long enough to do so. And so, um our, our, we have four daughters and, and uh, these young ladies, we loved education, as you know. And these young ladies went to some really great schools. And so we, we chose, and I chose to start a fund in her name in her honor. And the money um, in that fund will go to scholarships for black women who attend the, the colleges of Smith College. Our oldest daughter went to Tuskegee University our second daughter, Hampton University, our third daughter, and Spelman College, our third, our fourth daughter, who's a junior at Spelman now. Um, scholarships will go to those Black women who attend those schools. And to this point, it's been four four months since our passing. Um, March 3rd, last week, four months, um, we've raised $1.6 million in four months. And that money will go to uh, young Black, Women who are attending those four colleges that our daughters attend, um, but you know, uh, you know, it it just and you know this because you know me personally, um, it just rocked me. I mean, absolutely rocked me because this was not the plan. You know, our plan was that we would do this and and then we would kind of build our ministry of helping people as we retired and, and just go and just give things to people. That that was our plan. Whatever it is that we had to give. We give. We we pay our tithe, tithing to people, not to a church. Um, and Sharon was very adamant about that, and I followed suit, um, because she understood the power of giving. And and really, my healing has been just helping other people. Um, and so that is her legacy. And and um, it was not the plan. You know, I still have like moments of, of deep sadness. Um, and at the same time, I, I have moments of, of pure joy and light because of my remembrance of her. and so so yeah, you know she was just a powerhouse of of humanity.
1: That commitment to healing, the commitment to helping other people and the beauty of what you said about if people are still long enough, they can blossom into that potential. As you think about the next steps of your journey, Eric, what's motivating you or what's giving you hope about the possibility of community to continue to develop and flourish?
2: What's giving me hope is, um, uh, wow, that's a great question. I think what's giving me the most hope is the fact that other people are listening, that whatever position God has put me in at this point of my life uh, has given me credibility in a way that those who can help even more are listening to me and believing in the things that I'm saying, because I have done everything that I said I would do. That's really, really important to me. And, um, And that gives me hope because it allows for those folks who have been the most resourced to be in community, in authentic concert with those who have the least, and in and in, in bringing those people together, I think a very powerful things ha- thing happened because I think people who have the most come in commun- come in contact or proximity with those who have the least, and think they are going to teach, but they actually learn. More than they have taught, and I think that is a very powerful thing. If in fact we can avail ourselves in a real way to each other and realize that we are no different from each other, that 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 the suffering is redemptive on both ends, that we are all—if you are human—you are suffering in some way, right? And and if and if and if you can be honest about that, that we all need a an ounce of love every day, right? And that I believe, you know, I believe this is a deep belief I have. I believe we all have a masterpiece within us. And the thrust of our being is to reveal that masterpiece to the world. And most, of, most often, the revealing is because we are in concert or in relationship with others in a way where it, that thing that is in us comes out. And we present it to the world. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you do not have. Right. And so I'm very hopeful because I've I've been allowed to be a bridge to two worlds and a believable one. Right. And so um, that is an honor that I hold. So um, that, that to me gives me hope.
1: Eric Clemens is the founder of the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology in New Haven. And he's now executive chairman of the Connecticut Outreach Revitalization Program. Eric, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you dear sister, it's a pleasure.
1: Coming up, we'll talk about the future of community colleges. This is Disrupted, stay with us. welcome back to disrupted i'm Kalila brown dean it's not unusual for community colleges to see a surge in enrollment during a bad economic year but that's not what happened during the coronavirus pandemic community college enrollment plummeted with 10 percent fewer students at the beginning of the year compared with 2019 that's more students lost than any other sector in higher education Our next guest has been writing about this issue. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel is a reporter covering the economics of higher education for the Washington Post. I asked her to talk about the landscape for community colleges right now. Oftentimes, the community colleges pull a cross-section of low-income students,
0: some middle-income and upper-income students who are looking for ways to lower the cost of their education, lots of Black and Latinx students, but also lots of middle-class white students. But what we saw in the last year is that while the initial projections were, well, maybe a lot of people are gonna end up going to community college, it's an affordable option in order to to stay on the course for your education um, without having to worry too much about money. But the duration of the pandemic and the economic disruption that it has caused really rattled the core population of a lot of community colleges, especially adult learners. So for most community colleges, the average age of their students is about 25, some of them as high as 38. And these are people who are going to school part-time, working full-time, taking care of families, raising children. And when they had to make the decisions of whether to stay home with their kids in order to help them with their education, they put their own education on a back burner or when finances were just did not materialize the way they thought it would, that also became a problem. And for students who were coming out of high school going into college, some of them decided that the finances just wouldn't work. Others realized that a lot of the four-year institutions were a lot more open and more welcoming of them. And they figured, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well go straight into the four-year schools, some of which were offering tuition discounts in order to draw more folks. So they were kind of
1: grappling with all of those factors playing out at the same time. There seems to be so much diversity baked into the population that attends community colleges, but also the approach to serving those populations, whether you have older people who are looking for a career change or younger students who need that sort of extra push to figure out what they want to do in life, or those who say, I need the skills development and the training to have it. But why then in the United States do we even see community colleges burgeoning? We know that this emphasis on education in many ways is uniquely American, but then the community college system seems to be even more unique for the U.S.
0: It's a practical and efficient pathway towards post-secondary education, and I use post-secondary education as a broad term that is inclusive of career training, that is also inclusive of short-term skills training, right? So you can uh, learn to be a plumber at a community college. This isn't something that traditional four-year colleges really uh, are, are very bothered with <laughs> these days, but community college really uh, takes on that role of the everything for everybody. And it's it you know before the pandemic, about forty percent of undergrads attended community colleges. Certainly, the enrollment has fallen off, but I think there's a reason why the Biden administration, particularly Dr. Joe Biden, who, by the way, is a community college professor at Northern Virginia Community College, she's still teaching, which is wild to me, but um, there's a reason why they have really honed in on the idea of community colleges as the economic engines, because they can do so much for so many people at a much lower cost than other uh, segments of higher education.
1: I think even the very name community college implies that we see this access to education, this access to career development and training as being central to economic development, but also fostering those ties. What are you seeing within the Biden administration to address this, address the reality of not just declining enrollments, but the importance and the need to have job training and future opportunities for people who would usually go to community college?
0: I think candidate Biden had a very bold and expansive plan for how to support community colleges. Now that meant uh, tuition-free community college, which was a program that came about during the Obama administration that never quite made it to the federal level. But I will say lots of states, including Connecticut, have pushed forward with their own uh, tuition-free promise programs for community colleges. So Biden wants to take that up. He also wants to, uh, or said he would consider something akin to the Title I program in K-12, where money follows schools that really support and serve low-income, high proportions of low-income students, which would naturally benefit community colleges as well. And, you know, one of the things that community colleges have been very successful at, and the Biden administration says it wants to support, is the idea of wraparound services. So emergency grant aid, he has said he'd like to make a more federal, robust federal program to support that. Community colleges already have been doing that. They have Food banks. They are dealing with housing insecurity. I've spoken to community college presidents that actually do delivery services of food and groceries to their students and their families. So those sorts of very uh, communal and and very community centered uh, behaviors of community colleges is something I think the Biden administration would like to take to a federal level and promote federal support to things that are already happening in various states, and very in
1: various districts, at various community colleges. You mentioned that difference between what candidate Biden proposed and what President Biden is actually able to do or is doing in his current role. What do you see as the role of states in this and helping to fill that gap between the promises on the campaign trail and the realities that you're seeing for community colleges?
0: I think a willingness to partner with the federal government, there's always a little bit of reluctancy. And this goes across the political spectrum because uh, states don't really want the prescriptiveness of having um, a federal partner, right? Someone telling them, this is how you're going to do this. This is how you we want these things done. Some of that can can create a chilling effect in various states, especially at a point where states are looking at their their tax revenues and saying i don't know if i can maintain our financial support for this program if that's a stipulation of federal support that might be an issue so president biden has not made a formal proposal as to what he wants to do but i i've spoken to folks in the white house who say that that is forthcoming i think right now the big is getting the rescue package uh, in place. And then we'll start talking about how to get congressional support for all of the ideas that
1: candidate Biden promoted. Access to education is often contingent on access to funding. And just as we've seen the scaling back in the stimulus proposal, there's a question about whether we will see a scaling back on the commitment to student loan forgiveness. What are you seeing in that area and how does it affect community college students?
0: So the interesting part is that the fact that we are even having this conversation blows my mind. <laughs> I've been covering higher education for several years and this was kind of a, a wish wishful thinking idea of the, the very kind of far left activists. And the fact that this is a part of potential policy right now is amazing. So as you, you're probably well aware, you have Senator Warren, all of most of the progressive caucus, as well as uh, majority leader uh, Chuck Schumer saying, we want $50,000, no questions, no means testing, no caps on you know how much you make and such because that would do a couple of things. It would knock out the debt for about 75% of the population that owes money. It would potentially uh, start to narrow some of the racial wealth gap because black students owe more, they borrow more because of the legacy of racial discrimination. They just don't have the resources in order to afford college. Biden has always said 10,000 is his number. The reason being is that before the pandemic hit, it was pretty much understood that the people who were defaulting on their loans, who are really, really having a hard time, often owed less than $10,000 in debt. Reason being is they likely dropped out of college before being able to complete and before amassing more debt. So those are the folks that would benefit the most um, in his perspective from that 10,000. As I'm sure your listeners would know, there are a lot of people who are against any kind of debt forgiveness at this point. Questions about fairness for people who did not go to college. Why should they have to support this? Questions about what about people already paid back their loans? And then a big argument about this would, this is a regressive policy that would primarily benefit um, wealthier, higher income folks. The issue there is that it doesn't take into account the racial implications, right? There are higher income Black uh, borrowers who still have a potential of struggling to pay back their loans because they don't have the wealth and resources if they were to uh, lose their job or if a family member, which is very common, were to need help. So having to to think about the nuances of this issue is something that Biden has has to consider and uh, to my knowledge is considering at this point.
1: That level of vulnerability that people face, so even people who have obtained a degree and been able to get into a job or profession that allows them to pursue their interest, as you mentioned, there's still that difference between income and wealth. And the people who are often most affected by that gap are the people that we keep saying education can be the pathway to the future and and how you are able to pursue the American dream however people envision that. What do you think needs to happen in order to bring people together? I know there was a discussion at one point about a summit on higher education emphasizing community colleges. What would you like to see happen to really raise these issues in a full way and to be able to stimulate some of the policy changes that need to happen? It would be useful to have the Biden administration
0: host some sort of summit and really talk to borrowers and talk to current students and talk to prospective students and talk to their parents. I, I mean, we have to when we're having this conversation about debt forgiveness, and who's holding all this, all these loans, parents. There are a lot of parents right now that are staring down retirement and have tens of thousands of dollars in debt that they took on for their children's education because they want to be supportive. They were told that these are the things that you have to do for your child to be successful. There needs to be a really um, honest conversation and deep look at who is borrowing, why they're borrowing, what does this say about our values, what does it say about the shift away from looking at education as a societal good and towards an individual good? It's been decades of um, certain forces kind of hammering home that that belief that this is an individual uh, benefit. When we used to, as a society, think of education uh, as a societal benefit in an educated population, uh, makes for better voters, makes for more educated and informed uh, citizens, but that moved away. And it, you know, there are a lot of people who will say it moved away as the people who are going to college became Blacker and browner. And there was less of a kind of having state legislators who are funding uh, state colleges seeing their children in that population. And there's something to be said about being able to distance yourself and cut money when you don't feel like people like you will benefit. Uh, So it it takes a a lot of coming together and talking about what's really happening. And not, not just having conversation about debt cancellation but also having conversations about college affordability, the cost of delivering education, if, and then also the, the diversity of education. You know, One of the things that makes the US so remarkable and why so many people come here is just the wealth of options that are available. You can be a plumber, you can be a welder, you can get a graduate degree, you can do all those things here. But the one thing that the federal government uh, is supposed to be able to do is ensure that all those options are quality options. And that's what the Biden administration has before them. How do you ensure that students have
1: choice, but they're all quality choices? Danielle Douglas Gabriel covers the economics of higher education at The Washington Post. Danielle, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Disrupted is produced by Katie Tolarski and Anna Elizabeth. Our intern is Shekinah Collier. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.